This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. A combat win against Aston Villa. Back-to-back defeats against the big boys an ALK in finance controversy, all in a week for Burnley Football Club. I'm Richard Steele, and this is the No Name Ever podcast. So hello, listeners. Again, my name's Richard Steele. I'm your host this evening, covering for Natalie who's once again very busy in all her law work. Um, tonight, we've got with me two different guests tonight who you won't be too familiar with on the podcast. So we've got, first of all, we've got Will Lancaster, who has joined us on the punk podcast once before in our live phoning. So good evening, Will. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, been a long time. The last time I came on, we were on two points after eight games. So hopefully tonight I'll be in a bit of a cheery mood. So we must have... Brung you on as kind of a crisis point, Will. And did we win the next game after that? Um, I think so, yeah. I think it was the 1-0 against Palace on the turf. Well, if you were a lucky omen and we win against Brighton, we'll keep having you on then. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Cheers, Will. And then our second guest and making his no-name-ever debut is a fellow Wiganer and a good pal of mine, Chris Wilson. Welcome, Chris. Cheers, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Uh, glad to make my own ever debut today. <laughs> Definitely. All right, gents. We've got a lot to cover on the agenda tonight. I kind of forgot the last time we did a podcast, so I already thought we talked about the Villa game. But we've got the Villa game to start us off, which will be a nice review. Then, as I mentioned, uh, back-to-back dis- defeats um, away at Chelsea and at home to City. And then, obviously, and kind of what a lot of the podcast going to be on tonight is the transfer window. The interviews or a lack of interviews with Alan Pace in the last few days and the finances uh, controversy and especially that tweet that was put out on the evening of deadline day, which has caused um, a lot of Burnley fans to a little bit of panic, definitely myself included. So it'll be interesting to hear uh, the views of the two gents on that. But like I said, the Villa game, uh, fantastic comeback win for the Clarets. It definitely didn't look that way in the first half. Uh, so Will... Going into half-time, obviously Villa were 1-0 up, could have been 2-0 up. Was you expecting a Clavert's comeback in the second half? Well, we're not exactly the most proficient team when we go a goal behind. I think we've only won five games uh, from behind in the dice here in the Premier League. So, you'd be forgiven for not expecting what was to come in the second half. Um, Villa have looked a pass above as well this year. Obviously, Grealish has always been that sort of level. 
Ollie Watkins, Matty Cash that we were after, um, John McGinn, Douglas Louise, they've all been top, top draw. I, th- I think Villa are a top 10 outfit myself. So a draw would have been, you know, an acceptable result for us, definitely. Uh, Half time, they had obviously the goal, the Watkins chance where Pope came out and saved strongly. Um, yeah, definitely didn't expect what was to come. But um, as you know, we are a team that has grit, determination. And once Ben Mee scored that header, even though Grealish put them 2-1 up, there was that belief that, can we go on and do this? Obviously, when we went 2-1 down, I didn't think that was to happen again. But that crazy three or four minutes just sort of uh, buoyed the boys to victory and the rest is history. Yeah, cheers, Will. And you've definitely done the re- research there. So what did you say? How many times have we come back to win in the Daesh Premier League era? I'm pretty sure that I saw online that it's five. Wow, it's not a... five and that's it. Considering the, the amount... Yeah, consider, I was just going to say... In the six seasons, definitely. Yeah, considering the amount of times we've been behind in games in the premise, it's definitely a lower number. So, Chris, I'll come to you now. Um, obviously, Will mentioned there that you know Villa's got some high-quality players, Grealish in particular, who, in my opinion, has actually been the best player in the Premier League this season. Do you think it was a case of us being par in the first half or Villa just being excellent? Yeah, I think I'd agree with you there on Grealish. He's certainly up. If he's not the best player at the moment, he's certainly up there. I think, yeah, I don't think we were actually that bad. I just don't think we didn't really have a chance to actually play and show what we were about. They were just very good. And I think I'd agree with what Will said. They're definitely a top 10 side in the league this year. They just didn't give us a chance to get out our own half. It was just wave after wave of attack. I can't think of the stats off the top of my head, but I don't really remember us having a single chance. I think Barnes maybe put one just wide when Westwood had turned the defence around, but we didn't have much in that first half. I think probably the change at half-time. Cork, he definitely changed the game. I think it comes back to what we've talked about before, about Dyche. Sometimes he just reacts to the other manager when he's made a change. But in this case, he was proactive, brought Cork on and definitely swung the game in our favour. I think you saw second half, it was more what we were about. And then like, the added substitution of Vidra later on definitely changed it in our favour again. And probably ultimately is what won us the game. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think you made a great point there, Chris. Dice some, sometimes can be really reactive to his substitutions, you know, or we go 2-0 down and we, and we make a sub. Maybe his hand was forced a little bit with um, Brownell coming off injured at half-time. Cork had to come on. But I think him coming on really give us a little bit more quality in midfield and a bit more control on the game. I know, Will, you want to come in about a comment on that. So, yeah, go on, pal. Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, unnecessary stick for Josh Brownhill after the game because I personally think he's been much better than Westwood this year. A lot more attacking going forward, a bit more adventurous. And he's gone off at half-time and we've come back to win. And I've seen a lot of fans on the uh, Up The Clarets forum, Twitter, Facebook, saying, oh, is Brownhill really up to the task? But the best thing about that win was that we now have that option of, if we want to change it up, we can do. We're not forced to have Brownhill, Westwood, and then Josh Benson, as, as much as I like him, he's not just at that level yet. So the best thing about that win was, as you say, Dyche being proactive, being able to turn it round and the more options that we have, the more likely we are to stay in the league. Yeah, I think that's a big point is 
And what's been frustrating, we've never really been able to have a fully fit squad throughout the season. So to you know to have those options to come off the bench has been a massive plus. I do agree on Brownell. I think it. I think he needed a little bit of a break out the team. I think since he come out from, I think he didn't train for a while after COVID. He seemed to maybe lacking a little bit of that unbelievable energy that we know. Uh, but yeah, some of the criticism. Well, you know what it's like sometimes. It, it can be a bit very over the top. Some of the criticism that that you do see on that. Um, go on, Chris. Yeah, I th- I think Will makes a good point there about Westwood. I, I love Ashley Westwood. I think he's a great player, but I think. At times this season, he's someone who's not really copped for any poor performances. I think he's someone who, like his energy and just generally what Burnley are about, he fits us perfectly. But sometimes he gets away with an awful lot. And I think if you if you watch, especially the first Villa goal back, I think it if I'm not mistaken, it actually comes from a misplaced Ashley Westwood pass. I think he's someone who probably gets away with more than he should do, and. Probably the criticism of Brownell just make, it makes that even worse when you have someone like Westwood who probably gets away with a lot more than he should. Yeah, that's that's a definitely interesting one, and I think at Burnley we've got we seem to like scapegoating players a little bit. Last season it was Hendrick, some of it very justified in my opinion. This season Wood again, some of it justified. Uh, but yeah, there are certain players who kind of maybe get away with it a little bit more and. Obviously, Westwood is someone who you know gives us fantastic energy and fantastic drive in midfield, but he does have a tendency to give the ball away. But that's something that we're going to come on to later in the podcast. Is kind of looking, you know, and asking Chris and Will who would they go to in in that middle of mid midfield. So, Will, you mentioned there we was two one down. Uh, so we went what obviously we went one nil down, equalised. We went two nil, two two one down. What do you think the catalyst was for that turnaround? I think it was just pure grit, pure determination. I think it was a little bit more than that. I think some of it was potentially looking at the next couple of fixtures that we had after it, Chelsea and City, and thinking realistically we need something from this game. Otherwise, like hand on heart, we're probably getting nothing. So I think once we went two one down and we'd been in the game for a lot until Grealish's goal for the two one, I think it sort of buoyed them on to be like, All right, come on, pull your finger out, get on with it. Um, also, a lot alluded to Dwight McNeil. I thought he was absolutely sensational that night. That's something I was going to come and on to, Will. Wasn't he superb? Absolutely back to his that Liverpool game and Villa back to his best. Perfect. I was on a, a podcast the day after uh, at university. Someone wanted a half an hour feature on Burnley because they won at Anfield or something. And I spent pretty much all of it talking about but Neil still obviously with the game in mind. But he was exceptional, yeah. Showing what he has been used to in the last couple of years, really. Yeah, completely agree. You can, when McNeil's at, at his best, you know, he drives us on. He's, you know, he's the person that the rest of the team give the ball to. He's, he's looking to be direct. He's looking to get those crosses in. You know, I've, I've, I've got to give a special mention to Eric Peters. Listen, he's not my favourite player in the world. I'd much rather have Taylor in the team. But I thought that second half, he was outstanding. Obviously, the second goal, the equaliser, he laid it off to McNeil. And, and I think it was his run into the box, which kind of made Martinez hesitate a little bit and obviously we're seeing the ball go into the back of the net from there and then Chris I'll come to you and I know you've got a little bit of a funny story about this because you've been very fortunate with your job that you've been able to go to the turf when the rest of us have been watching it on telly but what a but what a header that was by Wood. Yeah it's a fantastic header I think the more you watch it back the better it looks I mean the crossing's great but the header itself he's coming away from goal 
which means he's got a well, and it's an outswinging cross, so he's got to generate the power and the direction, and he must be 13, 14 yards out, perhaps, and to get it right in the corner out, the keeper's reaching off the post. But yeah, I've been fortunate enough to go, and I'll be honest, even though I'm there working, like secretly I'm just there as a fan, and when that went in, to turn it around from 2-1, I, I can openly admit that I just I lost it, I, I just couldn't contain myself anymore. That's it's really It's so hard. That's brilliant, and uh, I, you know, I've been a few away games with, with you, Chris, and I know how hard you celebrate a goal. So I can imagine you trying to stay professional and then celebrating, uh, you know, that Wood goal going in. Uh, so yeah, fantastic, Edda. Uh, obviously, Wood's coming for a bit of criticism, and again, right, rightly so at times. He's he's missed some big chances. I think more earlier on in the season, but you know, fair play to him. He keeps working hard. He keeps plugging away, and it was great to see it at the back of the net. And, I was in a little bit of shock when we were free to up. I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, was you in the same boat there, Will? I was at uni in Manchester watching it in my living room. and I've not, I've, I can't remember the last time, obviously, apart from the Fulham game, that we'd scored three in the Prem. So I was having to wipe my eyes a bit, see if it was all real. But um, I just want to get back onto the point about Chris, when he went mental when we scored. <laughs> I've got a mate who works in the press boxes for um, a company called Vavil. He's a Liverpool fan, but he said he when that third went in, the entirety of the press box was just absolute limbs. Well, I, I've never heard. I've never heard that from a neutral who said that. Even I got up and punched the air. <laughs> That's what the charm of Burnley does, isn't it? You know, it, even <laughs> even neutral supporters uh, support the Clavers. As 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 Alan Pay says, he wants everybody to be to be uh, the country's favourite underdog. I think if Alan went on Twitter, I think he'd soon find out that Burnley's certainly not everybody's favourite underdog. But anyway. Gonna gonna stick away from from Mr Pace for now. So again, fantastic win against Villa, um, backing it up from the win against Liverpool, and even with the last two defeats, it's given us that little bit of a cushion. Um, you know, from from Fulham, you know, we, we just that little bit of breathing space means you can just maybe play with with a little bit more freedom. But we went into Chelsea away on Sunday. Um, you know, I was really confident going into that Chelsea game, but I think we played them at a bad time. Obviously, Tuchel's come in. Um, you know, obviously changed the formation which we struggled with and, you know, maybe brought that kind of that new manager vibe in where, you know, players do rise to it. So Chris, we started the game really well, first twenty five minutes we were knocking the ball around positively. And then from there it just kinda of seemed like we faded and faded. What do you think that was down to? I I don't know. I think it was maybe down to the efforts we sort of exhumed in the villa game to come back, quick turnaround of games and like we said before, we've not just it's not a simple run we've had. We've played Liverpool, Villa, Chelsea, and then knowing we've got to play City back to back. I mean, we are a fit side generally, but to play them four games back to back in a short space of time, it's a tough ask. I think like you said, we started quite well. Perhaps didn't look like scoring or opening them up, but we certainly started well. We like you said, we knocked the ball about with a bit of confidence and just faded. Just conceded like a sloppy first goal. We just got caught so high up the pitch, and against them better teams, they can punish us. Just goes from back to front in a matter of seconds, and before we knew it, we was picking the ball out of the back of the net. And from there, it's always an uphill battle, isn't it, against Chelsea? Like you said, yeah. new manager bounce and that, and not an easy one. Yeah, you know, I was, I was watching the game and I was just thinking, get you know, we seemed like our legs were going. I was just thinking. Just get to half time, get to half time, and unfortunately, we just conceded before from our throw in, got caught in the transition. 
obviously, Will, you know, you look at the blueprint when we won't beat Liverpool. We defended very narrow. We let them get the ball out wide. They got crosses into the box. We, you know, we pretty much cleared everything. We're against Chelsea, that narrow defensive kind of unit that we have didn't seem to work. The full-backs, especially Hudson Adai, wing-backs, I should say, you know, especially Hudson Adai had all the, you know, all the room in the world. And ultimately that, that led to the, you know, that led to the first goal. Is that a fault of the players on the pitch not to deal with that better? Or could have Dice done something different tactically to change it up and kind of nullify the threat of those wing-backs? I don't think there was anything wrong with it, to be fair. Like you say, it's Tuchel's second game in charge. The new manager syndrome was easy to see. Um, I think Liverpool, when we played them, I think he has gone out with the same tactic, but they're in a rut at the minute. Trent Alexander-Arnold had absolutely nothing on um, as Piliqueta. Salah wasn't even as good as Hudson Odoi, which won't happen once in many moons. So I think it was more the mentality of the other team, to be honest. I think we still defended quite well. It was a nice goal from Aspilicueta, a great goal from Alonso, but undone by two pieces of quality. And Dash said in his post match interview, you know, we've not actually done anything wrong. We've just come up against a team who are buoyed by wanting to impress a place, his competition in front of this world renowned manager. And we've just gone stuck against it. So. I think it was more Chelsea just absolutely dominating, to be honest. I don't think there was much more we could have done at all. Yeah, I, I do agree. Well, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe you can pick holes. You know, I, I, I'm a little bit more critical than yourself, though, Will, in the sense of that it was happening time and time again, especially Hudson Adai, where he was just getting all the, you know, all, all the space in the world. Could we have done, it's difficult, could we have done something? Could we have changed it up a little bit? Could one of our strikers had, dropped into midfield, so a midfielder could have covered that space. Again, I'm not sure, that's kind of... But when you're playing against top teams, they can make you look very average at, at times. Coming on to you, Chris, and I think a bit of a frustration, and again, understandably so from Burnley fans, was that in the second half, 1-0 down, we offered very, very little threat at all, If you know, similar to the City game, and I think we only had our shot in injury time. There's been a lot of criticism of Wood and Barnes. Uh, Wood went off injured, I can't remember how many minutes it was exactly, but it was quite early in the second half. Do you think against the big, you know, some of the big teams when we don't have a lot of the ball, we miss that threat of wooden bars up front, you know, to win fouls, hold the ball up a little bit better? Yeah, I think we do, especially Barnes. I think he can just, he could buy a foul out of nowhere and it just gets you them 30, 40, 50 yards up the pitch. And against teams like Chelsea, it makes a big difference. And I'm a really big fan of J-Rod and I do quite like Vidra, but like the pair of them on the pitch against Chelsea, it just didn't, neither of them really had any impact on the game in any sort of way. Wood didn't either until he went off. It was just difficult for us to get out of our own half, really. I mean, up, I mean, it doesn't help up front when we've not really got much creativity in midfield. We can't get hold of the ball. It was just really difficult all round. Like I said before, when you go 1-0 down at places like that, for us the way we play, it's really difficult. The game plan would be to stay in the game as long as you can, keep it nil-nil, hope for a set piece, but we couldn't even get a set piece, I think, if truth be told, on Sunday. We, it was just a really we literally had now, did we? We, had we didn't have a sniff of goal in any sort no. of way to say, all right, well, we could put some quality in the box here and we back Wood to get on the end of it or J-Rod, Vidra, whoever it might have been, to get on the end of it. We just didn't have anything, even like Westwood to put a ball round and into the channel. There wasn't even that. It was just really difficult to get the ball off them. Yeah. Um, 
I think that kind of sums up the, the Chelsea game. You know, we can analyse it to the tooth and say, you know, we could have picked them up more. Maybe we could have overloaded the midfield with, you know, maybe when Wood went off, could have gone five in midfield, etc., etc. But I did feel that it was just one of those games where Chelsea were very, very good. I don't even think we was that bad. We started the game well, but I just think their quality really shone through. You know, and as Will said, that new manager syndrome, you know, just really helped on that occasion. And we really just struggled to get that foothold in the game and just... You know, we we just maybe lack that five percent in you know energy and intensity due to the heavy schedule. You know, to really give it a bit of a a bit of a go at the end of the game. Um, so moving on to the City game, um, Will, I know you were desperate to talk about something else, but I'll come to you first for the City game. Um, we conceded after two three minutes and a disappointing goal from our point of view, and it kind of just I think it just deflated the players from there, didn't it? Yeah, it's it's always hard, like. The, the running joke is that, you know, City are our bogey team, if you can call them that. We we had the players injured before the game, Brady, Brownhill, Barnes, Wood. And when you're coming up against a team who at the time had done 18 games unbeaten in all competitions, you, it's got to be a bit realistic, really. We've put in a better performance than most sides have against City this season. They, they went and beat West Brom 5-0 like a week or two before. So I don't, I don't think there was too much wrong with that game. Again, either pretty carbon copy to the uh, Chelsea game to be honest with you but um, yeah not much in terms of creativity not a I little bit disappointed though Will with the Pope you know just to you yeah, know, we yeah. just want to stay in the game I thought you know you just listen I'm Nick Pope what a, you know it's been unbelievable for us but when you see him make that mistake it just it does great on you a little bit doesn't it yeah I think I think you've just got to be remembering that you know the amount of points that he has saved this year it couldn't have come in a better game, if that makes sense. You know, City at home, you're never really going to... Not many teams will pick up points against City. So, for it to happen in a game like that, it irked me. But you've got to be a bit understanding. Like, the Palace game he saved us in the last minute. Liverpool was on top form where we went and won. Um, I was just going to say before, which almost happened in the City game as well, in the Chelsea game, I saw a statistic on Twitter that said if Tarkovsky hadn't completed his header in the last minute, we'd have been the first side all season to register 0.00 expected goals in the league all season. <laughs> and, uh, I'm actually and gutted. That Tarky. Again in the city game. I'm actually gutted. Gutted Tarky got that shot off in the last minute. Then imagine all the people coming on on Twitter moaning about that. <laughs> Anti football. Anti football. Is that right? Not. <laughs> You know, you you two lads have you know are a bit more in tune possibly with the with the stats than me with the journalism stuff that that you've done your degrees in. But how will do you know how kind of relevant it is all that x xg is 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 it a really relevant stat or is it kind of just a bit like or it it's just something fancy to kind of say oh we were a better team than you on the day so we so we should have won. I actually quite like it myself to be honest because it it sort of gives like a you can. For us, it helps in a sense because I saw something again from the page that tweeted about the uh, Chelsea game. I think in the last 11 games we've had, we've been the losers in terms of XG. However, we've gone and picked up so many points. And I went on that podcast the night after the Villa game, like I mentioned before, and they said, you know, you're 19th for shots created, chances created, all that. How do you do so well? But they managed to conveniently leave out all the defensive side. And yeah. we've all these teams have shots from say 20 30 yards straighten it up 
few crosses, few deflections, and then we go down the other end. We'll get one chance, but it'll be a very, very good quality chance. And that's what XG doesn't pick up on. I think in certain games, like any other run-of-the-mill Premier League game, I think it is quite interesting just to see like how many teams can benefit from using such a a modern way of interpreting the game. But overall, I am a massive fan of it, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of, I do like my stats, so I was just kind of seeing what the relevance of it was because you do see some of them. It's like, yeah, but it had to no correlation to the game. Anyway, back to the Man City game. So, Chris, obviously, we conceded that early goal, and I thought we was actually doing okay, maybe growing into the game a little bit. Again, still not really looking threatening. And then, you know, a great bit of City playing you 2-0 down, and it's pretty much game over, isn't it? Yeah, I think, like you said, even at, after conceding the early goal, after that, up until the second, we was dare I say we was relatively comfortable they didn't really create too much by the way of clear-cut opportunities it was only really the second half when we maybe started to step onto him a bit that they had like the sterling one in behind that he should score and then they just started cutting us open a little bit more but I think they just started tying with us perhaps after they got the second and maybe like you said they just shook hands at half time and just agreed that 2-0 was (laughs) that was what, what both teams were probably relatively happy with like like we touched on before, we just didn't really look like scoring. We could have been playing now, and I don't think we'd have created a clear enough chance to even get to one in the XG, never mind on <laughs> on an actual goal. We just don't really look like scoring when we play City. I think Pep's just got some sort of like hold over us. He just knows how to play against us, knows how to beat us. It's It sounds simple, but he, we just City are the only top team who we've notoriously struggled against every time we play him. I could be wrong, but I think against Pep, I think we've only ever took one point off him, maybe, when Goodmanson scored off yeah. the top of my head. Yeah. It, it, it's such a funny one, City. It's the, I'm quite optimistic going into game, into games, no matter who we play, other than City. And it's just one of those games, home or away, we just think, right, I feel like watching it out of necessity. It's a bit like, you know, kind of, I imagine having to watch your kids in the school play, you've 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 got to do it, but you don't really want to do it. Um, you know, but at least we've played it twice now, isn't it? And, it? and it's out of the way. But yeah, go on, Will. I know you've got a point to raise on that. I think the worst thing is, at uni, I live with a City fan. Right. <laughs> so I'm always reminded of how bad we do against them. I've lived with Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea fans, where at least in my time at uni, we've gone and beaten them or, or similar. Yeah. And then whenever we play City... My housemate comes downstairs. Are oh, you ready for your five nil annual drubbing today? And it's just like, yes. Gets to two or three nil, and I'm, I just sit there like, what? what yeah. So I, I I completely agree with the fact that you know we've taken points off every single top team at least in the last couple of years. Beating Spurs, beating Arsenal, Liverpool, United away last year, and then there is some sort of like voodoo that when it comes to City, all the fans sort of like take a and like turn it down a notch and. I agree with our place. It's very strange. It, it's just so weird. It's like you know we've, you know we all, we've all played football and and you know and obviously there the seems to always be that one team who 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 like you always struggle against. It almost seems like we are a little bit beaten before. You know even the first goal scored so early, the mistake from Lowton not not being aggressive in the in the tackle, Pope's kind of tame shot. I think it just kind of sets up the mindset, doesn't it? Really. The last thing I'll I'll, I'll kind of say. Is so I'll come to you, Chris, and 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 I know it's a frustration that you've had, and and I know you do try and be balanced and take into account that we're playing Chelsea and City, but 
the lack of goal threat against both those sides and, you know, and kind of other games that we have, is it something that we should be more critical? So, you you know, I know we won at Liverpool, but I, I would still say Brighton was more of a goal threat than what we was against against Liverpool, if I'm being picky. You know, you watch some of these other teams, you know, down at, down at the bottom, they may not be as defensively good as us and, and they may not have that spirit. But I do think a lot of them do create more chances against some of the big sides. So, we, so again, Chris, go back to my original kind of like question: Is that something we should be more critical of the of the team about? Yeah, I, I I find it tough to watch sometimes when we play the top teams because yeah, there's there's a massive gulf in quality, and I think we can all live with that and understand that, and we're never going to be what they are. But it's just frustrating sometimes when you watch the other t- like teams around our level go to these places and actually have a go. So like you mentioned Brighton last night at Liverpool, they go and they have a bit of a go and they win 1-0. And yeah, they've got the same result that we had. And we got fortunate with the penalty, let's say, and we wouldn't have scored without the penalty, I don't believe. And we didn't create anything else on that night, really, where we'd have scored without the penalty. And I know, yeah, we got the same result. We both got three points. We had scored a penalty and they scored a great team goal, but it's just the spectacle of it sometimes. So, like, say City, I was at the Etihad when they played Sheffield United and both teams lost, but Sheffield United looked dangerous on the counter. Like, they had a bit more of a go. They could have scored near the end with Fleck. I've seen Villa there. Villa had a real good go at them. They were unlucky with, like, the offside from VAR or they might have come away with something. And Villa probably are a bit better than us, but it's just frustrating sometimes to see other teams go and like have a go at these teams and we just seem to set up sometimes and just accept that we're going to get beat at times especially against City like yesterday like you know yourself I'm not someone who's happy to just lose 2-0 like in a, I just want to go and try and get a result no matter sort of how that might be and I want to see my team like play free-flowing football and I accept that we can't do that all the time but sometimes the lack of creativity is really frustrating to watch yeah, I think I, I completely agree. And I think while Dice wins games and, you know, sometimes there's nothing better than a Burnley 1-0, you know, scrappy win, is there? And, and then, you know, where he gets and everybody else is back. But at times, you would like to see us play a little bit nicer football. You know, everybody wants that. You know, there, there, there was a couple of times last night where we did, you know, we finally won the ball back, broke a little bit, kind of got to maybe 25, 30 yards from goal. And then the ball ended up back with Nick Pope. And I'm like, oh, just, 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 you know, have a goal, get forward a little bit. Maybe we're petrified of getting countered, you know, and we've, we've, we've had it in the past where we're sitting here, we've left ourselves too exposed and, you know, we've, we've ended up conceding five, you know, so I know it's a fine balance, but I do echo your sentiments, Chris. It, it, it can get really frustrating. Will, do you agree with what Chris has said or do you have a different view on it? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think if you're Sean Dyche, you look at the record that we have against City, I think I heard during the game that it was like 27-3 on aggregate since we wow. last got a point, which would have been that good Lisbon one. And you just think, obviously, your plan against City isn't working. You keep it for Liverpool, you keep it for Chelsea, who we sometimes do quite well against. But surely you'd think, like, let's not start Wooden Barnes this game. Let's try and make it up maybe even a 4-5-1, just something. If, if we're likely to lose 5-0, like we do every single time we go to the Etihad or even when they come to the turf. Like, you just got to change things up, surely. Yeah, fully agree. And I would like... <laughs> I'm going to contradict myself here. I'm kind of go the opposite and, and saying, 
I wouldn't. I would like um, kind of more attacking football. I I wouldn't have even been opposed if he went to five at the back against City, knowing how well they, they get the ball out wide. But you know, may, maybe against those, those kind of teams, the big teams, the fourth. And again, I know we won at Liverpool, but you do look at our record against some of the big six, especially our, our record at Turf Moor is terrible. Um, it, it, it will be good to um, change the t- you know change it up a little bit. Um, Chris, go on. I know you want to say the you know a next point. I think you sometimes see a lot of people think that with the players we have, that we can't actually play the way that we we mention here, and that we want to get the ball down and play. And people think, oh, it's, that's Daish's managerial style that four four two rigid, hard to beat, long ball, play percentages, second balls, etc. But if you look back to twenty seven eighteen when we did actually change the way we played. We had a three-man midfield like Defoe, Cork, Hendrick as a 10. We actually played some of the best football that most of us have ever seen in like our lifetimes as a Burnley fan. So the argument that, like, oh, we're Burnley, we can't play that way and we don't have the personnel, I, I just don't think it's true. Like We have some really good footballers yeah. in the side. Like Tarkovsky can play, Taylor can play. Like We've got midfielders who are really happy on the ball. We've got some some quality players in possession of the ball. So I think we should probably look to change a little bit the way we play against certain teams. Yeah, I do agree. And even going back to that Villa game, the, the second half, we actually caught the ball on, on the on the floor. We did a beautiful move where Peters did an overlap. It was like Roberto Carlos-esque. Pulled the ball back and Wood had a shot that was saved by Martinez. I'm thinking, what brilliant football that is. And then there's other times where we just panic and revert to hoof ball. So, Will, I'm going to let you have the last point then on Man City before, on the City game before we move on. I think what the most frustrating thing is for us Burnley fans is look at our record against the teams outside of the top six, like specifically the bottom ten of any given season. And it's an incredible record. Like We very, very, very rarely struggle yeah. to make an impact on a game against a team that is either below surrounding or slightly above us. Whereas you look at the top six, and I know a lot of teams are similar, but some are notorious for scalping wins against the top six, like Palaces, Wolves and stuff like that. And I just think we had the credentials to go out to these places and obviously not win every one. You can't expect to win every single game against the top six, but even pick up, say, three, four wins a season out of the 12 games that you'd have. We'd be a top 10 outfit every single year. And I think Daishi's tactics somewhat limit ourselves to, what's the word I'm looking for, continue to be this like plucky outfit. A bit like Chris was saying about just, just revert to long ball when we are actually better than that and we can show it at times. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's one of the key things that I was looking forward to when this rumoured takeover <laughs> happened was because if we can actually get players who, given a bit of pace, say on the right wing, maybe sign a top dollar striker just to have an influence on these games, then we could be the outfit that we really want to be. And I know it's so hard to go and get a result against the top six. I'm not saying, oh, we should be doing better in these games against some of the world's best sides. But you see teams around us doing it quite a lot, like Brighton have just beaten two top six sides in the space of four days. And you just sort of think, what if? Yeah, like you said, it's it's that fine balance. But I agree with both of you. Even though we do accept it and it's frustrating, 
I still think against some of these bigger teams, we need to go for it a little bit more and, 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 and don't be as afraid because when we do play football, we are a good side. So, Daishi, we absolutely love you. Or should I say Stone Cold Steve Austin or Mick, Mick Hucknell, if, if we're going off your lucky-likey um, interviews. But sometimes you are an old stubborn old bugger, so just change it up a little bit more every now and again, like you did against the Villa game, and you know we might get a few more wins. So that reviews the last three games that we've had. Obviously a mixed bag, but we're still in a good position. That brings us into the, a big, a big run of games coming up. So first of all, Brighton at home on Saturday. We'll mention there that we've got a really good record against kind of the what you would say the teams around us. Chris, Brighton have been on a good run. I, I had a look at the form table last night. I think they're like sixth. I think they've got ten points in the last five games. They've come off the back of two excellent wins against two of the big boys. Is a draw a, a, a decent enough result on Saturday or do we have to go all, all, all out for the win in that game? I mean, I know you know me probably better than Will does, but I'm going to say we're going to have to go for all three. I, I've, I'm one of them. I wouldn't take a point at home to Brighton. And it might be sort of snobbery or anything, but I just wouldn't take a point. I think, like we said, about the home record against the bottom half is exceptional normally. I think we're looking for three points, but... It's not going to be easy because, like we said, these are no mugs. They've just come off the back of wins against Tottenham and Liverpool without conceding a goal. Of it was that I'm for sure that's right. Um, yeah, they're not yeah, going to be easy to break down. And like we we just mentioned, literally just about the way we play, we've spoke about this ourselves. If we go and play Wooden Barnes up front against the likes of Dunk, Burn, Webster. I'm sure Graham Potter will be made up when he sees the team sheet if Wooden Barnes are playing because we're just playing straight into their hands if that's what we're going to do. Should both of them be fit? I, I guess we don't know at this point, but I, I would like to see us play maybe Vidra, Barnes if he's fit, perhaps them two together and maybe change the approach slightly with just one big, one little man and just give them something to think about rather than the straight long balls all the time. I think that's a great point, Chris, you make about the strikers uh, and what we was talking about, about Dice being a bit more flexible. Your strike partnership, to me, is not like your centre-half partnership where you want it to be solid and, and continued. I think you can rotate a little bit more depending on the opposition that you're playing against. You mentioned the three defenders there for Brighton. If we just go hoofball all, all game, we'll get absolutely nothing against those three. Will, same question you know that, that, I, that, I, that I said to Chris. Given Brighton's form, maybe our injury record, we might not have players back. Would you be content with a point or, or have we got to go for the three? No, you, you, we've got to be going for all three, 100%. It's games like these in which we usually thrive. And, you know, we might not have Brownhill, we might not have Wood, but we've still got a, the mentality in the last few years that these are the games that we do go out and win. And it's such a sick pointer as well. I think that Daesh will remind them of that in the week coming up to the game. Like obviously, Tomorrow night, the team talk on Saturday. They'll have said, look, you've had your three hits against Chelsea and City. Now's your time where you've got to go out and produce. Um, I definitely would be gutted with a point, I think. Because we, we have we have such a good track record against Brighton as well. Went there last year, drew one all. Beat them away the year before. Usually beat them at home as well. I think it's a game which we can't really afford to slip up at this point in the season. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, you know, for me, I, I'd be disappointed with a draw. Um, 
listen, it depends how the game goes and maybe if Fulham lose at the weekend, you know, it might end up not being a bad point because you don't want Brighton to obviously go five points ahead of you, even though we have got a game in hand. But yeah, hopefully we'll, you know, really take the game to him. You know, I, I think against City, you know, Dice made some subs. We, we took our foot off the gas a little bit. So hopefully we can go into that game full of energy. Will, I'll stick with you. So we mentioned the midfield conundrum. Anybody other than Dale Stevens, so fans of the podcast know my disdain for that absolute fridge. But anyway, moving on. Um, so let's say Brownell, Westwood and Cork are all fit. Who are you going with in midfield? I think we need a bit of impetus against a team that notoriously aren't too high up in the table. I think if we have Cork and Westwood and as well as they did against Villa, I just think Brownhill brings that a bit of uh, yeah creativity to the side. He gets up, he runs at players when he can. I think if we use the other two, we sort of sit back and then we'll end up taking the inevitable Barnes and Woodroot. I'd probably choose Brownhill and Westwood. Yeah. So you wouldn't pick Cork? I'd maybe okay. bring him on for a bit of know-how if we were holding on to the lead or just to see the game out a bit. But my starting two would definitely be Brownhill and okay, Westwood. Okay, yeah. good, Will. And then Chris, I'll, obviously a, a, another conundrum is the striking. Let's say all fours fit. I know you mentioned it briefly before, but who are you all starting to on, on Saturday? I think if all four are fit, I think I'd be edging for Barnes and Vidra. I think Vidra probably tends not to get as many chances as he actually deserves, largely through the fact he only gets 15 minutes a game normally. But I think he's done enough over the last few games, perhaps not the Chelsea game, but especially the Villa game when he came on, he made a massive difference. And I thought he was probably one of the brighter players we actually had against City. He's got a nice touch and he can bring others into play and he's he's just something different. He can come short, but he can run in behind as well. He just brings a different dimension when we're going forward. And I think sometimes we lack that that bit of that bit of quality, you know, someone who can come towards the ball, take it and turn and sort of give us a link between midfield and attack. We don't really have that. J Rod does it a bit, but he's not really been on it the last probably the last perhaps even six months, as I'd go as far as to say. He's just not really been with it. So I, I think Vidra's done enough to earn a start and Barnes have been playing well before he'd been injured. So I think he'd probably come straight back in for me. Oh, yeah. Cheers, Chris. Yeah, good, good, good review on Vidra. And I think against Brighton, who's kind of got big physical centre arse, I think he'd be a really good option. And I think Barnes, even though it is took a little bit of stick, Coming into that Liverpool game and during that Liverpool game, I think he was really finding his mojo back and getting back to his best. So, um, through the obviously the No Name Ever podcast, we're, we're going to have Brown, the main selection dilemmas possibly. We'll have Brown, Ellen Westwood uh, in midfield and then Vidra and Barnes up front. be interesting to obviously see what, what Dice picks. I've got a feeling myself that Dice will go with Cork and Westwood and Wood and Barnes up front, but we'll see. I do hope Taylor's back fit too. I know Eric's done okay in the last few games. But I think Taylor really gives us that, you know, that impetus and that drive up the left-hand side. So, Chris, uh, scoreline on Saturday, what are we going for? The Just the classic Daesh 1-0. I think we know how to win these big games. Not going to be easy, but I'm just going to go with a 1-0. Nice. Will, same question? Uh, I don't know whether to choose with my head or my heart. <laughs> I think my heart says 2-0. My head says one all. 
I think they are a really good attacking team, Brighton, and we will concede to them, but we also have enough to get past their defence. I think it is generally the game of who I, the better Yeah, I think one. I think it's either going to be nil-nil or one-nil to either team. I think if one of the teams gets a goal, I think it'll stay that way and the other struggle to equalise or they'll cancel each other out. But wouldn't a lovely, nice and relaxing Will's, predict, Will's heart prediction of 2-0 be lovely? So that kind of reviews the games. Now we're going to, the final part of the podcast, and for me, the kind of the, the, the topic that is on everybody's lips and every Burnley fan's lips, and it seems in the national media's lips, is Alan Page, the way the deal's been structured. And, you know, kind of, the, you know, this tweet that was going to send, 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 that was sent out on Monday night on deadline day. So when Pace come in, myself included, I've seen it through claret or rose tinted glasses. I thought, you know, it's going to take us to the next level. We're going to sign this, this and that player. And it's going to be an absolute furry tale. And I think Pace has gone on, you know, come on, maybe with a smooth American accent. He, he was saying all the right things and he really warmed to Burnley fans. And, and I've got a sense that some people have stuck with pace, you know, which, you know which, which, which is grand. Some people have distanced him and kind of wrote him off already. I'm kind of in the middle. I, he's not done enough for me to trust him yet and, and he's not done enough for me to distrust him. But the jury is very much out. Before I bring the two lads in again, I'm going to read the tweet that um, apparently a reputable journalist in the football fin- finance world called Tariq Panja wrote on deadline day. So he tweeted, interesting talk about owners of newly acquired Premier League club scrambling around to raise £30 million by trying to sell equity stake at a far higher valuation. Cash needed to repay debt owned to previous owners. Crazy business. Of course, he didn't mention what the club was, but I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to work out he was alluding to Burnley FC. And that night, Burnley fans were madly scrambling, asking Chris Broden, what's this, what's, what's going on? And his initial comment, um, his initial kind of quote was, ALK said no comment. And then about an hour later, it come back with the same, we've explained the debt structure, it's reasonable, we can pay it back. And that's been it. And Alan Pay since then has been very, very quiet. So, Will, I'll come to you. Because me personally, that tweet concerned me more than anything I've read so far. Are you concerned? Are you keeping a balanced view on it? I'm trying to keep a balanced view, yeah. I'm looking at how he's done with um, Real Salt Lake and you're thinking, right, there's good times ahead. I think he has been tre- a bit harshly because you've got to have your due diligence period. He only came in on New Year. He's only been here a month as much as he can promise. We are in arguably since 2008 at least most tumultuous financial times around. However, having said that, he knew the situation coming in, guaranteed players coming in in the transfer window just gone. And some of the stuff that's come out in the press recently, if you believe it or not, which I am on the fence with, like you say, I'm going to give him a bit more time. I'm going to give him the summer transfer window, definitely, because there's not much he can do from now until then anyway. I'm going to back him up because in our situation we can't really have kept up with Mike Garlic so despite all the financial figures that are coming out I think this is still the best option uh, but yeah I'm going to give him till the summer transfer window hopefully still a Premier League team at that time 
And if we kick on from there and all these rumours about the money go away, then I'm sure that they'll win the hearts of the supporters. Yeah, good, good balanced view, Will. And I'll come to you, Chris, and I'll add in the Guardian article. I thought Simon Jordan, obviously people's got very mixed views on on him and he's kind of had a, you know, up and roller coaster relationship with football. He, he he did a really good speech on Burnley for about five minutes on Talksport. It's definitely worth any Burnley fans listening to it if you've not listened to it so far. The summary of it was is that these guys are gonna come in. They are, he can't see of any other reason for them to buy a small Premier League club like Burnley unless to make money from themselves, but fair enough, you know, if you if if you buy a business, you know, you want to make some money off it. But he said that with this leverage deal and putting debt into the club, if we're successful and we stay in the Premier League, fantastic, the club can build from there and we're going to be okay. But if we go down, and his terminology was, if the bottle spins on Burnley, which it undoubtedly will, again, you can have your own views on that, and we go down, we could be in a whole heap of trouble. So, the, with the tweet, Chris, with the Guardian article, with other articles from the Athletic, from Bloomberg, and then Simon Jordan's piece, you know, what are, what are, what are your views on it? I think, like you just touched on there, I think it just hinges on survival, doesn't it? There's there's no doubts that when Pace has come in, or it certainly seems that way so far, that he's coming with the wrong intentions. I think one thing that has been said before, and I'll say it again, is perhaps a generalisation, but with American businessmen, they know how to make money. So that's never... I think long-term for the club, we will we will do well if he's still in charge, but it just hinges on survival and probably hinges on Daesh as well, as Simon Jordan touched on. But in the short term, I don't know. Perhaps to keep Daesh, he needs money because to keep Daesh, to keep up with the other teams around us and subsequently stay in the Premier League. I think we can all agree that the squad needs money spending on it. But the worrying thing is if that money isn't there to be spent and he's scrambling around for money to pay the directors, then short term, where does it leave the club? So say the club goes down or Alan Pace can't pay this next instalment and the shares go back to Mike Garlick ultimately like the club's still saddled with the debt it doesn't go with Alan Pace it's like the loan's still in the still against the club like we're still in the same situation regardless of sort of who's in charge so I think short term I think fans have got every right to be worried about short term what the future holds for us you know and like you said you know and like Simon Jordan said and listen every Burnley fan every football fan knows Keeping Sean's crucial. His contract's up in 2022. That's going to be really interesting moving forward. Uh, go on, go on, Will. I know you want to make another point. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with Chris there. I think one of the main fears that Burnley fans have at the minute is, you know, we've not been the most proficient in the transfer market over the, the last couple of years. Like I've got a group chat with a lot of my Burnley sporting mates called the Bottlers because we always bottle transfers. It's like notorious how we do it. And I think obviously when Alan came in, it was such a big excitement, like, oh, we're finally going to join the big league. Not Obviously not Man City sort of money, but at least try and keep up with, like, your Wolves maybe, your, your Palace, they signed 20 million on um, a very Eze this summer. And I think now that it's all coming under wraps, we're starting to endure some of that negativity again. And I think that that's definitely the, the fans' main doubt is that 
if, like you say, he's scrambling around to find this money, are we going to end up doing something similar to than that what Blackburn did? And obviously, as funny as that was, it'd be awful if he was on the same foot. I think that's a big reason for the scepticism that's come out of the fans put it in the last couple of days. Yeah, that's really interesting transfer window. I know we're gonna, I am gonna come on to it in, in a minute, but yeah, go on, go on, Chris. I think, like we say there about the transfer window, I think that's like Will said, that's pretty much the biggest cause of the the meltdown amongst fans. I think even before all this came out on deadline day night. If you were to scroll through Twitter clarets, it was just full of angry Burnley fans because we hadn't signed anyone, which I think the tweet, the subsequent tweet hasn't helped. But I think we've just got to stick by him. It's his first transfer window here. I just, I don't think anyone really expected us to go and buy like £50 million worth of players in one transfer window. It's just not realistic. So I think some of the Burnley fans, like we've just got to be realistic about He's not shake man so, do you know what I mean? He's he's not going to come in and we're going to sign like they sign Rubinho. We're not just going to go and yeah. bring Griezmann in. Like it's it's just going to be a gradual long term plan. It might not work in the short term and we might struggle through, but it's a long term plan for me. Yeah, I think like Will said, uh, you know, it's very frustrating that we didn't sign anybody in January. I think a couple, of, you know, when you see the injuries we've got. And I think the situation in particular out wide on the right, where we do need a winger to come in and, and, and obviously we was really linked with Kenny and we do need another right back moving forward. I think it's not too, I don't think we should judge him just yet. And as Will said, after the summer, maybe the time where we judge him when we do need a big overhaul of the squad. Um, but, you know, what, what's, what's your thoughts, Will? Should we be kind of, OK, it's early doors, there's a pan, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Players aren't as available, they're going to be expensive. Are you disappointed we didn't get players in or are you still pretty calm about that and think, you know, we've still got the summer? I think given the results of the last few weeks that it's definitely taken a bit of the pressure off. To say that we're now eight points clear of Fulham, we're over halfway. It's a big gap to make up eight points. It, it very, very rarely happens. And I think that's definitely given Alan Pace a bit of leverage in the market. Um I was disappointed we didn't bring just even one person in, even on loan. I think Will, like you just see, bringing one player in would have just given everyone a bit of a lift to say, oh, Pete is doing something different, isn't it? Say, so even if it was John Joe Kenny for eight, nine million, it's maybe not a marquee signing, but it, it, it would have been something to, you know, something tangible to hold on to, to think, right, Pete is in this. He wants to improve the team. Yeah, definitely. I think you look at the loan market that's, you know, uh, Maitland Niles. Great player in my eyes went to West Brom. They're they're ten points below us. We should be trying to recruit, even if it's a loan deal, just trying to recruit someone of that caliber, just to like you say, boost the spirits around the club, get someone new in the dressing room, bit of competition. It's not going to harm you. Um, Joe Willock, another Arsenal player, went to Newcastle on loan. They're around the same level as as us this season. I just think that one signing it didn't have to be a, a big money signing, like you say, like Kenny would have been. All right, but he's gone to Celtic on loan. Um, Collins, obviously only been in three and a half million. That was disrespectful. Um, and then Jason Knight was rumoured from Derby and one of my mates said oh, he's a great player. We need to be signing him. Made captain at 19 under the spell of Wayne Rooney, which is quite a hard feat. So I think something like that, like say, would have just buoyed hands up, built a bit of spirit and then 
stick on from there. I think you made two good points. I think the loan market, I think that's obviously, you look historically back, the loan market's not been our friend and I don't think Dice wants that. But at the same time, when money's tight, I think it can hinder us. You know, you said about Maitland, Niles, uh, you know, right back. No doubt he would improve our team. But he's ended up going to West Brom. So that's a frustration. I remember, I'm going to bring on two quotes I'm, I'm going to mention. The first one I'm going to mention is, is, and, and, is that, you know, Pay said there's not going to be an open checkbook, but we're going to be able to make things happen quicker. And that brings me back to what you said, Will, about that bid for Nathan Collins. So under Garlic, it was tiny bids, and eventually we ended up paying what, we want, what they wanted anyway, but maybe two, three months down the line. So, Chris, when I seen that four and a half million bid come out for Collins, and you hear rumours that they're after between 10 and 15, I just actually laughed out loud and I thought, bloody hell, this is happening again. Yeah, I think we spoke about it, it's, and we'll touch on it. It's just quite, it's just embarrassing, to be honest. Like, as Burnley fans, to see everyone thinking, like, it, it just reflects badly on the whole club that we actually believe we can get these sort of players for that sort of money. It's certainly not a new thing. We can go back to sort of Craig Dawson, Craig Bryson, Emery Lansbury, even Jeff Hendrick when we first signed in. Dale Just Stevens. Dale Stevens, yeah, we had like six bids, was it? Something like that. It's not a new thing and we just never seem to learn. It's like the same mistakes over and over and over again. The most frustrating thing for me with Collins is that we. Sh- I just think we should have gone... If we were going to sign one player and you were so fussed about money that you're tight on money and you want to save as much as you can, then to me a centre-half would have been the one we got. Because... If we go to sell Tarkovsky in the summer and we've got Ben Gibson, who if Norwich go up, we get about, is it seven, eight million pounds from? So say we sell Tarkovsky and we might bring in 30 million, perhaps as a consummate guess, from the pair of them, then Stoke are going to turn around to us in the summer and say, well, you've just got 20 million for Tarkovsky and you've got 8 million for him. You've got money. You need a centre half. He's now worth 25 million. And you say, well, you, we could have had him for 15 in January. And you say, well, you could have done, but he's worth 25 now. So if you want him, you've got to pay for him. And they'll just hold us to ransom. It happened to Leicester when they sold Maguire, with, like when they went for Nathan Aki. But luckily they had Soyuncu there ready ready to step yeah. in. We had it when we sold Keane, but we already had Tarkovsky. We were prepared. But this time I don't think we really are. I think that's a brilliant point, Chris. And I completely forgot about Gibson. So you've already put a, a four and a half million bid in. Norwich look like they are going to go up. So, so you can think, you know, Taki's going to go in the summer. I'll, I'll be amazed we don't. So we, so we know we're going to get a, a, a lot of money in. Get the lad in where he's going to be a little bit cheaper. Um, he can bed in for the team for six months, you know, work under the dice weight and he's ready to come in like Tarkovsky like was. I know it's kind of not as... I think, I think as fans, we're very guilty of making it seem simplistic, like it's going by in a car and you go into a showroom and you say you want that one, you pay the money and you go. I don't think it is as easy as that. And I think the majority of fans do know that. But I think that that, that Collins one was the... Because it was clear that Pace has tried more, but at the same time, it, it, it kind of was frustrating that, you know, that bid that went in and, and, and especially if we did really want him. Go on, Will. I just want to make the point about Gibson when we actually bought him. So I remember being on holiday in Spain with my family and my dad's an Evertonian. I showed him a tweet saying, oh, we've just bid 12 mil for Ben Gibson. 
And he went, all right, accepted. Or, and I went, no, they want 15. He went, oh, yeah, you'll end up paying that. An hour later, they bid 13 million. It's like, do you not get the message? I know. And I think I, I think that, that's what's most annoying about this this whole Colin saga is you'd have thought we got past the the garlic pettiness point with Pace, given the, the rumoured money that he's meant to have is that you'd have thought we'd have gone out. And if they wanted 10, maybe bid eight with add-ons or... Get a bit, just get a bit closer and get a bit of excitement landed in. And like you say, when you bid four and a half mil, I was exactly the same, but as you just laughed and put it away. It was it was comical because it was one of them, if you don't laugh, you don't cry. It was that type of situation, wasn't it? So that wraps up another episode of the No Name Ever podcast. Covered three games, look forward to a game on Saturday and obviously a really good discussion um, around Alan Pace and the impending takeover. And I think it's a case of Clavitz fans to... Just cross your fingers and even though it might be challenging, you've got to put your faith in this man, um, you know, and, and and hopefully he'll take us on a on a positive journey and, you know, when we can keep the successful times going. So I want to just say a massive, massive thank you to the two lads tonight making their known ain't ever podcast debuts, Will Lancaster and Chris Wilson. Um, thank you very much to producer Matt, who does his absolute magic behind the scenes. Um, thanks to the band Joyce uh, for providing our theme tune music. But most of all, thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in to another No Name Never podcast. I've been your host, Richard Steele. Good evening. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. 
And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.